You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking this morning at chapter 7. Reading together verses 30 through 53. You'll find this on page 915 of the Pew Bible. Acts 7, 30 through 53, we find Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin, testifying, and we're in the middle of his speech. He has recounted how God has worked in the history of Israel. And so we pick up at verse 30. Hear the word of God. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. 
What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Well, as we've seen, Stephen was one of seven men ordained as deacons. And he was a man full of grace and power, and he was standing before the Sanhedrin to answer charges of blasphemy. The high priest demanded that he plead either guilty or not guilty. And so Stephen began by rehearsing the important events in the history of Israel. He could not plead guilty or not guilty without explaining himself. False witnesses claimed that he had profaned both the temple and the law. Very serious charges. But it wasn't true. He simply showed that these things had been fulfilled in Christ. And because the Messianic age had been inaugurated, these things were no longer necessary. Having fulfilled their God-given purpose, they were now obsolete. And to prove this, he rehearsed God's call of Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Promises made to him were coming to fruition in Christ. All the families of the earth were being blessed as people from every tribe is converted. And with the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, history entered a new phase. We're told in Hebrews 9, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. A watershed event. History changed. And so Stephen is tracing the history of redemption through the patriarchs to Moses. Raised as an Egyptian prince, he became mighty in his words and deeds. And he recalled the seemingly unfortunate events that led to his exile. And that's where we pick up the thread this morning. Moses. And the focus on Moses, I don't think, is surprising, given, given the significant role that he played. It was through his ministry, Moses, that the Abrahamic promise had provisional fulfillment. Israel became a great nation, as God promised. And, of course, Abraham had a great name, as God promised. So Stephen highlights the call of Moses in the wilderness... And it's obvious that he shared with the Jews the highest respect for this man, Moses. And note how he says here in verse 32 that an angel appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And then it says, the Lord spoke from the bush, I am the God of your fathers. That's verse 32. So an angel appears, but it was the Lord who spoke. They're one and the same. So how does he equate an angel with the Lord? Have you ever thought about that? The angel of the Lord, it's what we call a Christophany. 
It's the appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. It's an incredible thing. He's called the angel of the Lord elsewhere, or as Isaiah 63 calls him, the angel of his presence. And as the angel of the Lord, he's the one who prevented Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac. Remember Genesis 22? By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And this is the angel that appeared to Jacob and said, I am the God of Bethel in Genesis 31. And this is the angel that said to Joshua, I brought you up from the land of Egypt in Joshua chapter 2. So he's equated with God. The angel is equated with God. And the only explanation we can come to is that it's the pre-incarnate Christ. And when Moses encountered him in the burning bush, he was terrified. And God commanded him to remove his sandals because the ground was sacred. There's nothing holy about dirt. But Christ's presence sanctifies it. It was set apart from common dirt because it was the pre-incarnate Christ. And just like here, there's nothing inherently sacred about this room. It's a room. Windows, walls, ceiling. But when we meet for public worship, Christ is present. And then it becomes sacred. In the presence of a thrice holy God, even the dirt is made holy. That's what he's saying. And so Moses was standing on holy ground when the Lord expressed his concern for his people Israel. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their groaning. And I've come down to deliver them. Isn't that encouraging when he says he was well aware of their suffering under the harsh conditions in Egypt? Isn't that comforting? He sends Moses to deliver them. They reject him at first. But 40 years later, after liberating them, he leads them to Sinai where they meet God. In a majestic splendor amid all the cosmic phenomena, Yahweh descends upon the mountain and a nation is born. And Moses receives living oracles. That's what it says. Ten commandments, ten words. What a gracious thing. But the people were unbelieving and unfaithful. And Stephen goes on then to describe the Jewish idolatry and the Lord's extreme displeasure. Which, by the way, is a recurring theme throughout the wilderness wandering. They had the tent of witness. They had this tent of worship constructed according to the pattern that God revealed, the place where God's glory appeared and the high priest atoned for sins. And when the Jews crossed the Jordan, they brought that tabernacle into Canaan, and it was the service, the place of service, until Solomon built that fantastic temple in Jerusalem. But as Stephen underscores here, God does not dwell in man-made houses. He's the most high. He's the most high God. And heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. He's the creator of the universe. He just spoke and it came into being. Who does that? 
His hand made all of these things. And if neither heaven nor earth can contain him, what temple can house him? He's infinite. He's not restricted to any one place. His presence cannot be localized. But he does say that he dwells with his people among those who trust him. Pastor Pilon read earlier, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That's incredible. And so Stephen traces the Jewish history from Abraham to Solomon. He highlights the exodus and the conquest and the reign of David and the building of the temple, all of these privileges. And he emphasizes the faithfulness of God. And then Stephen did something that must have shocked the Supreme Court. He turned the tables on them. And he accuses them of violating the law. They were stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. And like their fathers before them, they always resist the Holy Spirit. And he drew a parallel between the persecution of the prophets and the crucifixion of Christ. You're just like your fathers. They killed the prophets. And you killed Jesus. And as Israel had been unfaithful in the past, so they were being unfaithful now. Because they crucified the righteous one and they resist the blessed Holy Spirit. That's his speech. I think we should learn from this the important lesson of total human depravity. Total human depravity. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. The Spirit exerts His influence upon the souls of sinners, but they often resist. I don't like irresistible grace. I'd prefer invincible grace because we do resist as sinners. But it's invincible. He always gets his man or woman. The Spirit knocks at the door of their hearts, but they refuse to open up. And he offers the grace of Christ to them, but they repulse him and grieve the Holy Spirit. And we see this illustrated in the ungodly behavior of these Jewish leaders. Frequently, the Spirit exerts his influence upon the hearts that remain hard. Isn't that amazing? He moves in the ministry of the word. He moves in the offering of prayers. He moves in the singing of praises. But hard hearts refuse to yield, and they proudly resist the influence of the third person of the Trinity. And as Stephen describes the leaders, they're stiff-necked and stubborn to the core. And that same kind of resistance goes on all the time in the modern-day church. The Spirit presses home the truth of the Word. And He convicts of sin. And He moves in the heart to do this or to do that. But people shrug it off. Not something I ate. They explain it away or they just ignore it for now. And that's to resist the work of the Spirit who knocks at the door of the heart. And you know something, what's sobering about what Scripture teaches is that there is a limit to mercy. At some point, he withdraws his influence. 
Genesis 6 puts it this way. The Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. There is something called quenching the spirit. I think it has to do with neglect and worldliness. As fire is put out by water, so the spirit is quenched by our ignoring his influence and indulging our desires. Despite all the religious advantages known to man, Israel failed. Time and time again, they resisted the spirit and he was quenched. And there came a point when he stopped exerting his gracious influence. The door of mercy was closed. And the offers of grace were withdrawn. And the destiny of Israel was fixed. And in Ezekiel's vision, we see the spirit of glory departing from the temple. And it was then, as it was in the days of old, Ichabod. The glory has departed. You know, we do not excuse, but we do understand the depravity of the pagan world, right? They are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what can we expect from creatures, sinful creatures who have no hope? What should we expect? All sorts of evils plague our society. Wickedness runs rampant. And yet no one need be surprised at the evil within the irreligious world. What would we expect? They do not know God. They are without his law. They're enslaved to their evil desires. What is amazing to me is the amount of restraint that God places on the wickedness in the world. So we don't excuse it, but we do understand it. But how do we understand the shocking depravity in the religious world. Israel had the promises, the covenants, the ordinances, the law. They lived in Canaan, which is called the most glorious of all lands in Ezekiel 20. And yet they were a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You know, church people sometimes have the preaching and the sacraments and the prayers of the saints, and yet there are some within the church upon whom these things seem to have no effect. God brings his spiritual artillery, as it were, to batter down the strongholds of Satan, and yet the sinner refuses to yield. And he's intent on defending the devil's fortress. You see, I think Israel served as a microcosm of human depravity, an object lesson, if you will. You can have all the spiritual advantages the world has to offer, or the church has to offer, and yet still be lacking in spiritual life. Unless the Holy Spirit changes the heart, the ordinances will do nothing. Mankind is a fallen race. We are by nature thoroughly depraved. And consider that scathing indictment that's issued by the Apostle Paul. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Were it not for Christ and his spirit, there would be no hope for sinners and there would be nobody here today. 
So I think we should rejoice and give thanks for our salvation in the righteous one, as he's called in verse 52. The Jews hired Judas to betray him. They obliged Pilate to condemn him. So they were guilty of betraying and murdering Jesus, the righteous one. And yet the death of Jesus had been ordained by God to be the means of our salvation. Isn't that weird? You who once were alienated, he has now reconciled by his death. That's worthy of rejoicing. It's through the blood of Christ that we had the forgiveness of sins. The guilt and the stain of sin cannot be removed by any other way. There's the exclusivity. This is the only way. In him we have redemption through his blood. So God decreed the cross from eternity and the Jews committed the crime. Now that's a mystery and I can't explain it. Augustine put it this way, he tried. He can't explain it, neither can I of course, but he said the fact that men's sin is their own doing that they, by sinning, do this or that, comes from the power of God. He ordains it, they do it. And in the blood-stained cross, we're able to find the remedy to our biggest problem, human depravity. The righteousness of that righteous one is imputed to all who believe. Christians are all chosen out of mere grace by the same God. We all have the same Christ who paid the same ransom for each one of us. And all believers have the same righteousness credited to their account. This makes sense. You see, the value of a diamond, to illustrate, is the same whether it's held by an adult or a child. Makes no difference, right? The diamond is the diamond. So with the merit of Christ and his obedience and sacrifice, it's the same for all makes no difference who you are, old or young, strong or weak, male or female. Believers of every stripe are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and it has the same value. And he saves us to the uttermost. But you can't receive his righteousness in any other way but by imputation. Now, there's a word to discuss over lunch. Imputation. It's theologically very important. It's drawn from the world of banking. Any bankers here, you know what I'm talking about. If you make a deposit in my account, the bank imputes it to me. I didn't put it there. But on the ledger, it's reckoned as belonging to me. So... Theologically, our sins were imputed to Christ. He didn't do it, but they're his. And his righteousness is imputed to us. We didn't do it, but it's ours. And this is what theologians have described as the great exchange. Great for us, tough for him. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Imputation. 
According to Isaiah, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God reckons his righteousness to our account as if we did it. And if he imputes the righteousness of Christ to your account, you are righteous in God's sight. I don't care what you've done. Makes no difference. If he imputes the righteousness of Christ to you, you're righteous in his sight. We were guilty of sin. We fell short of his glory. And now we deserve richly the sentence of death. But God sent forth his son to be born of a woman to redeem those who believe. That's the gospel. And the only instrument through which this imputed righteousness can be received into your account, faith. Gentiles attained a righteousness that is by faith, Romans 9.30. So faith, this marvelous gift, Faith is the instrument by which Christ's righteousness becomes ours. And receiving him gives us the right to everything that is in him. And it's all the fruit of God's love. So final point, let's draw comfort and joy from the truth of God's distinguishing love. Human depravity, the righteousness of Christ, ultimately the fruit of God's love. Distinguishing love. And I think this is one of the most important truths brought forth in Stephen's speech. He chose Abraham. He called him because he was pleased to do so. It had nothing to do with Abraham himself. The man was an idolater. But God set his love upon this man and distinguished him from the world. He did the same for Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and his 11 brothers. And then Moses is born and he's beautiful in his sight or special to him as some translate it. And the Lord singled him out to lead the people out of Egyptian slavery. Despite all of their unbelief, all of their defiance, God's faithful. Why? Because he loves them. He distinguished Israel by establishing a covenant with her, a covenant of love. And he gave her Canaan with Joshua leading the way and raises up David and Solomon through whom he blesses the nation. Therefore, all along the way in the history of the Abrahamic line, we see his distinguishing love. It's called distinguishing because it distinguishes between people. It's not the kind of love that God harbors for the whole world of mankind. You know how he does this. He extends general benevolence to all people on every continent. He makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. But it's not that special love which God has for his people. Did you see that when we confessed that question? Out of his free and special love to his elect and from nothing in them moving him to do so. In his accepted time, he invites and draws them to Jesus Christ. It's not who you are. It's not what you've done. It's not where you live. He loves you because he loves you. That's it. 
According to his everlasting love, he distinguishes you from the world. Just as parents have special distinguishing love for their own children. I'm, I'm making an assumption there. I assume you do. Moms and dads make a distinction between their children and others, right? Normally, now this is normal, you don't throw birthday parties for every kid on the block. You might invite them to your child's party, but the party is for your child. You distinguish your child. And more than once, Jesus highlighted the distinguishing nature of God's love. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? John 14, 22. John 17, 6 and 9. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Distinguishing love. You see, God singles out those upon whom he sets his love. And it's one of his most transcendently glorious attributes. That is to say, it is in his love that his glory is so magnificently displayed. John says, in this is love. You want to know what love is? In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. As if to say, you want to see what love is? Nowhere do you see it more clearly than the cross. And it's upon that foundation that all of our hopes are built. It was the culmination of a plan formed long ago in the depths of eternity, if you can even begin to believe that, because with an everlasting God, his love itself has to be everlasting. He knew you, and he loved you before the foundation of the world, before anything was existent. He knew your name. And where his distinguishing love goes, so goes his gracious presence. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. If God himself makes his home in the believer's heart, how safe is that believer? There is no force either visible or invisible, that can destroy that relationship. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You can take those things that he mentions singly, or you can take them all together. It makes no difference to Paul. Nothing can loosen God's mighty grip on those whom he loves. And the children of God, the Christians that are gathered here, are the apple of his eye. That's not me. That's what the Bible says. And you're deeply cherished. Have you had a rough week? Yes. Have you sinned this past week? Of course. Have you failed? Doubted? Wondered? Yes. He loves you. That'll never change. And of course, this distinguishing love is undeserved. It's due to nothing in us, just like it was... In Abraham's case. And it's not just that it's unmerited favor. Do you realize that God loves you as his child in spite of your demerits? 
In other words, you're not only undeserving, you're ill-deserving. But that's the point. It has nothing to do with you. He loves you because he loves you. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you, he said to Israel. God's love for his children is like a boundless ocean with no bottom. We'll sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. You know, part of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is a clearer understanding of this very thing. I bow my knees before the Father that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Not that we can never know something about this distinguishing love. Rather, it is so vast, so unbounded, that we'll never comprehend it. Indeed, to all eternity, we will spend our existence exploring and discovering deeper depths of his love. For love, Christ became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse. It is an infinite, everlasting, unchanging love that cannot be not denied. And I would hope that the truth of this love would sustain you throughout the coming week. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we marvel. We marvel at your love, which is eternal and unwavering, so that in spite of ourselves, you love us. And you proved that at the cross where Jesus died in our place. Please help us to sing praise with joy and gratitude in our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.